Hello and welcome to the Wish You New podcast. I'm your host, Karen Bortvet. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in again this week. Before we jump into the interview that we have planned for you today, I want to give a shout out to the lovely Laura Mock, who did the logo design for the Wish You New podcast. I realized last week that we've done three episodes and haven't given her a shout out. So if you're looking for a graphic designer to work with, you can check out Laura's work at lauramock.design. And like I said, she's the one that did that great logo that you see every time you click on the podcast. So thank you very much to Laura. This week, we have an interview with two friends of mine, Melissa and Pete, who lost their house to Hurricane Sandy. This is the fifth year anniversary of Hurricane Sandy, later this month in October. So we wanted to do something in remembrance of that, and also with all of the natural and man-made disasters in the news these days, for many of us, we've never experienced that. So we thought it was a good time to talk with someone who has been through that experience so we can all learn from that experience and how to better support people who are going through such an experience as that. Hope you enjoy the show. So let's get started with Pete and Melissa. Pete and Melissa, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having us. We have a bunch of different questions today. Some of these are questions that I've come up with and others are questions that were submitted by our listeners who are eager to learn from your experiences. For those who have read your bio, we learned that you lost your house to Hurricane Sandy five years ago. The first question is to help all of us understand the state you're in or what goes through your mind when you hear that a hurricane is coming toward your house. Do you remember what was running through your head when you heard the hurricane was coming towards where you lived? Uh, that's a really interesting question, Karen. Yeah, to, to go back a little bit, the year before Sandy hit, there was a hurricane, Hurricane Irene, that had the forecasters had predicted was going to make landfall in Long Beach, Long Island, where we were living. And so we and the rest of the community um, packed up everything. Uh, you know, we moved our TV to upstairs. We put our furniture on blocks. Um, we did everything we could to protect the house. And we followed the suggestion that had been issued to evacuate. And Hurricane Irene ended up coming in with a whimper and was nothing more than a glorified rainstorm when it actually made landfall um, not too far from where we were living. And so when we heard about Sandy, not just uh, Melissa and I, but I think our whole community kind of groaned and said, oh, here we go again. They're telling us that this hurricane is going to hit, that there's going to be these effects. But I don't think anybody really believed it. There was a little bit of uh, the, the boy who cried wolf thing going on. And so, interestingly, we took a lot less precautions from the, <laughs> to protect our house and our belongings from the hurricane that ended up really turning our lives upside down. And it was kind of interesting. It, we kept hearing about the news. And it was like, oh, should we evacuate? Should we stay? The last time, like Pete said, during Irene, our neighbors were making pancakes the morning after and we were still, you know, we were kind of stuck outside of our house 
and it took us longer to get back with that. Oh, we don't really want to deal with that. But in the end, we decided, oh, what the heck? We'll probably be more comfortable if the power goes out. We had Evie at the time who was two years old, I think. And Eli was at the time five, five and a half. We thought, oh, we'll go to our mother and my mother-in-law's house. It'll be more comfortable. So that was really what what did it is we thought, oh, well, well, it'll just be better to go somewhere else. It wasn't, I don't think either one of us was really thinking that it was going to be the one that was going to, yeah, turn everything upside down. You mentioned moving your TV. Was that the one possession that you took the time to move out of harm's way? (laughs) I don't know. The story is that Pete was away with work for the week and I was home alone with the two babies And I kept hearing about Irene, 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 and it's going to be bad. And to fill the, the busy or to make myself busy while I was nervous, I, I I did like Pete said, I packed up all kinds of things that I don't think were very important, but I moved them at the time. Um, and then when actually Sandy was building up, I was working and busy and I was just never even thought. And so the TV was downstairs with everything else. You also mentioned prior to the storm seeing different announcements on TV about the storm coming. You said that that was how you found out that maybe you should evacuate. Is that the only way that you're notified if you're living in an area that might be affected by a hurricane? Or how does that process work? I believe that they had vehicles going around announcing that uh, evacuation had been suggested and that everybody should leave so i think there was also that you know the one thing about a hurricane that's different than for example uh, an earthquake like we saw recently in oaxaca mexico is that there's a lot of notice so you you know you hear about it as soon as the computer models suggest that it might come anywhere near you and so as the days build there's also the, you know, um, more and more information about preparations that you should take and then ultimately about evacuation as well. And I also signed up for a, it's like one of the things that the local, the city had provided. It's like an emergency line. So it would send me text messages or uh, voice messages. And it did end up sending us messages to say that this is a voluntary evacu- evacuation. And then when when the computer said that it was going to be closer and there was much stronger of a likelihood that it would hit our city, then it turned to a mandatory evacuation. So I got those messages and texts from a system, an automated system that the city had installed for anyone who signed up. Had you been through any hurricane prior to Irene, or was that the first time for both of you to go through that whole process? There had been hurricanes that had mildly affected Long Island in the past, but at that point I had been living in Long Beach for about 15 years, 14 or 15 years, and there hadn't been anything consequential that had come through. With the hurricanes, did you consider not evacuating or did you have neighbors who chose not to evacuate? That's a great question. Yeah, there was actually uh, a lot of our neighbors who um, 
because especially of Irene and the fact that they had left and nothing had happened and the fact that what happened to our town was really unprecedented they just said you know what we're going to we're going to stay we're not evacuating you know i'm i'm just going to wait it out it'll be fine it's not going to be a big deal and then speaking to all those people a couple days later to a person they said Next time I'm going to evacuate because they had the experience of looking out the window as the ocean filled the streets and the yards and everything in the community uh, rising, excuse me, higher and higher. Um, and they didn't know, you know, when it was going to stop. So it was really a har- harrowing and traumatic experience for the people who who stayed. It was kind of interesting because up until the days before, uh, you know, maybe like the weekend, a few days beforehand, there was some with some people, there was an attitude of like, oh, you staying? Are you staying? Like, like there was going to be some sort of like badge of honor if you stayed through the the hurricane. But for us having you know, the two little kids, like I said, there was no reason for us to be proud. At one point, Pete said, oh, I'm going to stay and you go. And I said, no, we're going to stay together. So we all went. What factored in for most people when they were making that decision, whether or not to evacuate or what helped you to make that decision? I I mean, I think for a lot of people it was, well, I know one of our neighbors said, you know, where am I going to go? You know, I'm going to go to this person's house and inconvenience them. I, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to go and be sleeping on somebody's couch for a night or two, you know? So there was some of that, the inconvenience factor and, and other people just really like said, you know, this is my house and I'm going to stay here um, is what I, I saw. I don't know. What do you think, Pete? Yeah, no, I think you you captured it. I mean, there's people, I remember, and I think it was for Irene, where I said, no, you take the kids and go, I'm going to stay here with the house in case there's anything I can do. (laughs) And Melissa started laughing at me. She said, what are you possibly going to do to stop the hurricane from, you know, damaging our house or affecting... And I came up completely empty. I had absolutely no idea of how I would be able to, to fight the forces of nature. I said, I guess you're right. And I packed a bag and, and went along with the rest of the family. And so when Sandy came, I had already come to grips with the fact that um, I was useless in the face of natural disasters. And so, um, you know, packed up my stuff and went. How did you decide what you were going to pack up when you left? Oh, it was like we were going to a sleepover at my mother's. We were like, you know what? It was totally going through the motions with the expectation that we were going to come back the next day and, you know, resume life and be inconvenienced by having to, you know, unpack the few things that we might have packed up to take with us. But we had no sense that we were, you know, in for what we were in for. Yeah, I mean, I think whenever we went back after, I think if I would have really been thinking like, oh, this is the big one again, I would have, you know, picked up photo albums, things that I would that I cannot replace now that I just didn't think of. Because like Pete said, we just we just didn't have it on our radar radar. And maybe other people did and we didn't. But I don't know. We brought nothing important really to Pete's mom's house. You said you packed up as if you were just going to be gone overnight. How long did it end up being before you could return to your home? 
It was a full month before we were able to spend a considerable amount of time in the house. Uh, within a few days, we were able to come back to you know start throwing away pretty much everything that was uh, on the first floor. You know everything from appliances to tearing out the rugs to, to throwing away the furniture to books. So we were able to do that, but the whole first floor had been filled about two and a half or three feet with ocean water. And so even to, to sleep upstairs, you know, we had to make sure that the house was sufficiently dry, that there wasn't any risk of mold having spread. And so there was a lot that had to be done before we could spend a considerable amount of time in the house. And we also didn't have power for the first eight or nine days after. All, a bunch of New York City didn't have power. And it also was November, so it started to actually get pretty cold. And so we were trying to, to gut out the house while it was starting to be pretty cold outside. I want to talk more about when you went back to your house for the first time. But before that, I want to jump back a little bit further do you remember what you were thinking when you were at your mother's house hearing that the storm was setting in or as the storm was coming? I think it was still like denial, like, oh, yeah, I remember from Irene. And then Pete actually had the the radio on, like the local news station. So it was probably like in the middle of the night, every once in a while, I'd kind of like wake up and hear like, oh, the water is or it's raining really hard. Now it's hitting X area or whatever. So I remember kind of like, like that, but I think I was just still sort of in denial that I just kind of was like, okay, it's going to be fine. Like, we're just going to go back and, and it's just going to, it'll, you know, we'll find out more what's going on in the morning. So I was still kind of in denial, I suppose. And by the time the morning came, you know, the electricity was out. And so mm -hmm. you hear some reports or if someone had a wireless device that still had battery, you might be able to, you know, get on a web page to read a little bit. But you, you knew it was way more serious than we had anticipated. But the scale was still unknown until um, we actually had the opportunity to go back and, and see what had become of our Town. Yeah, I think Pete's absolutely correct. I think it started to kind of sink in a little bit that Long Beach had hit when we finally got onto like social media, like Facebook. And there was pages going up saying, you know, my mother lives on Riverside and da da da. I haven't had contact with her. Someone, you know, and people were just starting to exchange names of people and they were looking for people and they were saying flooding on this block and this block is bad and sand here. And so once you started to see those things, and even though we didn't see our street on those different social media, like Facebook pages and such, I still thought, oh, man, that's like two blocks away. That's three blocks away. And so that's when it kind of started to sink in that, oh, our house probably got hit with something. I don't know how bad it is, but I'm sure it probably is flooded. What were you thinking when you went back to your house for the first time? Did you have any idea of what you would be finding? Well, Pete went back first, so I'll let him share his thoughts. Yeah, I went back the first day that they were allowing people back. The uh, the National Guard was there and they were checking licenses. You had to be a resident to uh, even cross over to the bridge that, that led to Long Beach. And so 
I was like, okay, let's see what this is all about. And I remember just seeing the amount of sand that had filled the streets. And as I was approaching our house on a road that was very familiar, there were a lot of things that made it obvious that big sand dunes in the middle of residential streets where Mm -hmm. the ocean had just come up and deposited a ridiculous amount of sand or things that were, you know, businesses that uh, you could just kind of see in and see that all of the the goods were scattered across the floor. And so as I drove, it became clearer and clearer that what I was going to find might be shocking. And so I got to the house and I parked and I could see the line going across about five feet up on the house of where the high water mark for the ocean. So I was like, wow, I said, you know, this is, this is serious. There were also some children's like a slide and some other like children's like um, play structure things that were in our front yard that didn't belong to us and some big tree planters. Uh, And I learned later or figured out later that they had just been picked up by the ocean and just happened to be deposited in our front yard. When I opened the door, it was actually strange because everything was familiar. I mean, it was all our stuff as we had left it. And it wasn't until I really started looking around that I, you know, it started to strike me that all these things were, you know, soaked with ocean water and some of the furniture, you know, had floated up. It was overturned. Um, But there were a lot of things that looked like, oh, this is okay. But then when you reached out and you touched it or you examined it more carefully, you realized uh, that that things were in really bad shape. And I remember I went to the fridge and I opened the fridge and the drawers at the bottom of the fridge that are used for produce were filled still with ocean water. And the stove, when I opened it, still had... Uh, was filled with water. So, yeah, it quickly became clear that there was a lot that was going to have to be done before we could even dream about our lives going back to normal, just the the scope of, of what we needed to do or what needed to be done before we'd be able to, to call this house home again was was incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I think I remember when Pete came back that morning. I it's very weird the thing I noticed on his like car tires that they were very muddy, and I was like, "Oh no, what is he going to say? What is he going to say? What did he see? What happened?" And and then he he ended up taking pictures. So at least I got to see pictures first before actually going into the house and seeing it seeing it in in real life. Yeah, I remember coming back and feeling like a sledgehammer had hit me. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I, I, I didn't have, until I saw it with my own eyes, I really didn't have a sense of, of the destruction that something like this would leave in its wake. And you were very quiet, too. It was like I was trying to be like, so what, what was it like? Like, what happened? And you didn't say all that much. And it was like, okay, this is not good. <laughs> You mentioned that the National Guard was there. Were there other groups that were there helping, or how long did it take for there to be support or aid effort from outside that came in? A lot quicker than we're seeing in in Puerto Rico. 
You know, it was the south shore of a of a major metropolitan area, so I think they were able to mobilize resources fairly quickly. And so the National Guard was there to prevent looting, and I never heard of any instances of looting afterwards. And then within a few days, they were giving out bottled water because the, the water supply was contaminated. So there was a station where you when you drove into town, um, where you could pick up a 24-pack of bottled water as well as uh, MREs, which are meals ready to eat that are often used in the armed services. But it's basically a, a packet that you can open and prepare yourself a hot meal with nothing other than adding a little bit of water, which which is kind of neat. But I would say the, the one of the things that was most touching is that how much of the support just came from either local people or people from the surrounding area who wanted to be helpful. And so people would, for example, just make a big pot of stew and then drive around the neighborhood or walk around the neighborhood giving to anybody who was at their house, cleaning up, giving them a warm meal or... Or coffee. Remember, they would drive down the block and we be like they're bringing coffee and it was cold so it was a lifesaver to be able to have that warm cup of coffee when you're trying to clean out the house and everything for many of us we're probably not familiar with the area that you're talking about could you describe what the community was like where you were living how many people were there just so we can have a little bit of context sure so basically we um Long Beach, Long Island is right outside of the the Rockaways on the south shore of Nassau County. And it's basically, uh, when you see old pictures, it's a community that was built on a sandbar. So back in the 1930s, they started putting beach bungalows, you know, little houses where people would go to spend the weekend on this sandbar. And it became more and more developed. And then as real estate prices went up in New York, people started converting their little summer homes to year-round homes, and then apartment buildings were built. So over the years, this little stretch of of sandbar became a a pretty big town where there was about 30,000 people living there, and sometimes it was a very um, popular beach destination. So sometimes in the summer, they would say that there would be 100,000 people in the town at one time when people were at the beach and there was a, a strip with, you know, bars and restaurants and so... And a boardwalk, um, very popular mm-hmm. too. So it was a very unique place in that, you know, most of the people who lived there commuted between 45 minutes to an hour to New York City and yet it was a walk around beach community right there on Long Island. How many of those people came back after the hurricane? There were people, yeah, I don't know the number. There were people that we knew, like, through the kids' schools and who left and never ended up coming back. I would say the vast majority ended up eventually coming back. But, you know, some people, you know, their homes were destroyed to the point where 
took years before they were able to do anything or if people were inadequately insured. It made the um, process of, of rebuilding very complicated. A lot of people ended up raising their houses in accordance with uh, FEMA regulations. And so the house would literally be lifted up and a concrete structure would be of like 8 to 10 to 12 feet would be built underneath the house to support it. So houses that had been on street level are now towering, you know, 10 feet off the off the ground, which is And we never different. went we never went through that process, but talking with neighbors about the process of raising their house and you know, like I said, we personally don't have the experience of what that was like with the red tape and dealing with FEMA. But a, a lot of neighbors, one of our neighbors, I think within the last year, finally had her house demolished and the storm was almost five years ago. And that she, I guess her her story was a little bit more, more extreme in that uh, we have other neighbors who have raised their house and we have other neighbors who decided not to raise their house, even though FEMA gave the, those new regulations. So the community is kind of some people stayed, some people left, but it's kind of all over the board. In the bio, Pete mentioned that when you were going back to your house, the two of you were sort of laughing and joking, whereas some of your neighbors were much more somber and had a different reaction. What were some of the reactions that you or your neighbors had returning to the community? People were really upset. I mean, people were really, they were really sad. And it's not that we weren't sad. I think initially when we didn't have a plan and we didn't know what we were doing, it was kind of like, whoa, okay, life is not going to return to normal for a long time. Like that normal is no longer normal. Or, I mean, yeah, the normal is no longer um, available. We have to create a new normal. And so for us, we kind of, once we were able to understand that this, that the life the way it was was never going to be back to that, we were able to adjust uh, what we were thinking. And for some people, that's really hard. For some people, it was really hard to think about the change uh, that was going to be and the fact that neighbors weren't going to live there anymore and the stores that they love to go to weren't going to be open for a long time. And when they did open, they would it would be different. So a lot of people were really I mean, I feel like some of the work that that I did after coming back was a lot of listening, just like you'd go back to the house and pull up carpet or and you'd see a neighbor that you'd, you didn't know that well but they would just start talking and, you know, sharing about their story of whether they evacuated, if they stayed, how they felt, tears possibly, you know, and these were neighbors that I kind of knew. But so a lot of people were really feeling the emotion strongly, especially the days right after, like the, the first two weeks. So you mentioned being able to listen. That sounds like a positive approach being able to share and listen are there other positive coping mechanisms or things that you think helped you to get through that time i think people who were able to shift their focus from the big picture which was completely unmanageable and instead focus on the next step ended up coping a little bit better than than others you know for example 
how I'm going to get my house habitable again is, you know, too big for me to think about. But this rug is wet and ruined. I need to cut it out of the, you know, cut it off the floor and, and, you know, throw it out into the street so it can be collected with the rest of the garbage. That's manageable. I can do that. And so, you know, every day you, you couldn't, you couldn't stay in the house, but for the first, you know, week or two, you'd go to the house and you would just keep yourself busy doing some of the things that clearly needed to be done. And step by step, what needed to be done next revealed itself. So that kind of made it a little bit more more manageable. Mm -hmm, I agree. A couple of times you've mentioned going back and forth to the house as you were cleaning things up. How did you do that with your job and your kids and everything else? How did you manage? Well, I think like I was saying before, the power was out for the first at least eight or nine days after. So nobody was really working. Nobody was really, everyone was waiting in lines for, for gas or just trying to keep warm. So that was one thing. The city was kind of uh, crippled in that way. Well, I shouldn't say the whole city. I know that there were parts that were uh, largely affected without power. And then I was working at a high school at the time, and I had talked to friends and the principal, and he basically just said, you know, take as much time as you need, do what you have to do. And, and I think I've Finally, I don't remember. Do you remember when I went back to work, Pete? It was like, no, it was like maybe before Thanksgiving. Yeah, a few couple weeks. Because I do remember commuting from your mom's house to go to work for a bit of time. Maybe, yeah, maybe a week or two. And then I do, I remember after Thanksgiving, we definitely moved into the second floor of the house. So, so my job was super understanding and, and I kind of needed, I kind of needed that because I think I also, needed to adjust my own mind that things were different. And I was just sort of letting go of the life that was before because it had all changed in a mo in an instant. And so it was really helpful for me to be able to to be able to have that space to, like Pete said, do one thing at a time with the house and move along in the process one piece at a time without having to go to work and explain it to everybody and talk about it. And it was almost like I got to work and it was like, yep, this happened. I'm not sure I really want to talk about it. Like I want to distract a little bit from this kind of disaster that is my house right now. And and that was good for me. That was therapeutic to be able to go to work and do something a little bit different a little bit later on after we had the first pieces sort of uh, done with the house. You moved into the second floor of your house. How did that work? <laughs> so yeah so as i said before the first the first floor of the house was totally um you know devastated and so we spent that month ripping down all the sheetrock pulling up all the carpet pretty much throwing away all the furniture and so you know the house was down to uh down to the studs basically on the first floor we had like commercial drying units in the that like dehumidifiers to pull the moisture out of the air and we had a kerosene heater to keep the temperature up because it had gotten cold also to kind of help dry out the house so after about a month we determined that the house was sufficiently dry that it wouldn't pose a major health risk to um, to return and so what we had upstairs was we had three very small 
bedrooms and a bathroom. Our oldest child, Mariana, was away at college, and so we turned her room, which was probably about 12 feet by 8 feet. It wasn't a very big room, but we began to call it the everything room because it's where all of our time, waking time was spent. And so there was a bed in there that we could sit on as if it was a couch, and we brought the coffee pot and a microwave oven and a George Foreman grill up there. One of my family members had the kind of fridge you'd find in a college dorm room, and so we brought that up there. And so that was the room in which we prepared our meals, where the kids did homework, where we would play games, you know, play games, <laughs> read puzzles. Books. Yeah. yeah. And then the other two bedrooms were very small, so there was really just room for a bed and a, and a dresser them and so we used them to sleep and then the bathroom luckily the one bathroom that was in the house was on the second floor and so we continued to have that although we had to use it for everything and so it became common to do the dishes in the bathtub because there was really no other place to do them and so for the next yeah nine or ten months we just lived on the second floor of the house all through the winter the 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 boiler was damaged and so we would run a kerosene heater or two kerosene heaters on the empty first floor and the heat would rise and that along with some electric heaters were enough to get us through the winter but it it wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. We had, I mean, that, speaking of, of people helping and mobilizing, people were very, like uh, like Pete said, like the family member offered us uh, the micro fridge and then somebody else said, oh, I have this George Foreman grill I never used. Do you want it? And so people really came together in various different ways to um, sort of just help us in our time of need, which was really great, too. And Melissa became a world-class George Foreman <laughs> grill chef over those 10 months, preparing things that one could never imagine would be able to be prepared on a George Foreman grill. How did you figure out that that was what you were going to do? Uh, how did we figure it out? Well, we kind of, I don't know. How did we figure it out, Pete? Crazy as it was to live on the, the second floor with so little, at least it was our own space and we didn't feel like we were imposing and, you know, we we felt like we were home even though the house itself was a, a shell of what it had been. It was still where we had lived, where our lives were. And so when we moved back, there was only maybe one or two other people living on our block of maybe 60 or 70 homes. The standard house on our block was only one story. And so for those people, you know, the whole house was wet. And so there was no no thought of returning until major work had been done. Our house was one of the few houses that had a second floor with the bedrooms upstairs. And so that allowed us to, to move back uh, more quickly than a lot of other folks. And so I remember looking out at a block where it was always difficult to find a parking space and just having our car in front of the house and the rest of the block empty like a ghost town. Yeah, it was a little weird. What was it like going through that with your kids? You know, kids are amazingly versatile. And so 
as long as we could put on a good front, they weren't very affected. You know, it became the new normal. And so they really didn't miss a beat. You know, Evie was very little still. And so, yeah, it was really easy just, you know, to keep her focused on the positive. And Eli ended up going back to his school going back to his class his school had been totally wiped out by the the hurricane and so he ended up going to another local school where the building was in better shape but um, they had two kindergarten classes now sharing a classroom that was really built for one class and so uh, I give the teacher he had his kindergarten teacher a lot of credit because knowing how crazy things were in everybody's home life she she really worked hard to make the school day uh, a normal one and, and make it um, you know an enjoyable learning experience for the kids and so I think that was really helpful for for him as well. Yeah, and one thing about the kids, you know, later on down the line when it was time for him to go to to first grade. He went to first grade in a different part of New York in Austining before we were headed off to El Salvador to live. And he spent the first semester in this school. And the teacher, during the first parent teacher, she's like, you know, I'm just not really sure. Like, he's not really reading. And she's like, he's a smart kid. I don't understand why. And Eli had never explained the hurricane. And we never did either because we had, you know, it was the first first month or whatever into school. And when we finally explained, you know, the reason why he's not able to read is we went through a hurricane. And basically during that school year in in kindergarten, as Pete said, like the teachers really did the best that they could. And, And when you think about it, most of the children in the school at that time, they didn't have a room with like a table. Like we didn't have a kitchen table even to think about doing homework. So how hard a teacher must have to think about teaching kids to learn to read and the library also was flooded. So how do you make those things happen when so many of your resources were literally flooded out? Uh, so switching back to the first grade, the, the first grade teacher, when I explained what happened and how he, you know, it wasn't his fault, you know. And so, you know, the great thing was the teacher was able to spend some extra time with Eli, basically getting him up to speed with the rest of the first graders. But it really, you know, the, this kind of natural disaster, when it wipes out a community, it can really, it has influences that you kind of don't really think about um but they're, they're definitely consequences that can be difficult for people later on down the line. Are there other things like the schools that are maybe infrastructure related or daily life related that were impacted by the storm that you wouldn't have necessarily thought of prior to the storm? Or those of us that have never experienced a storm like that probably have never thought of? We had a, a local hospital. Oh, that's right. And it was substantially damaged and they they ended up not rebuilding it. And so whereas we had had an emergency room right in the community for, you know, as long as anybody remembered, now all of a sudden the nearest emergency room or the nearest hospital was, you know, a half hour away instead of being five or six minutes away, which upset a lot of people in the community. And then just things like not being able to shop. I mean, anything that you wanted to do, you needed to leave the community because 
businesses were slow to reopen and they were going through the same thing that everybody else was. And so for whatever you needed, it meant getting in your car and, and going to a different part of Long Island or the city to get what you needed because there just weren't stores functioning in Long Beach. And a lot of the small businesses left and never returned too. So I'm going to jump back a little bit to something you said at the beginning. You mentioned insurance, and there were a couple of times that you've mentioned resources that you had or family support you had. How do you think that your situation might be different than someone else's situation who didn't have the proper insurance or who didn't have those family resources? Yeah, I mean, I think that being well-insured was a blessing. I happened, one of my uh, close childhood friends became an insurance agent, and I think I bought the insurance more just to, more to be a good friend than I did because I had any fear of natural disaster. But when the natural disaster did hit, we found ourselves adequately insured, which was, uh, you know, fortunate for us. But it certainly wasn't the case for everyone in the community. FEMA has has programs that help for people who don't have insurance, but the amount of help that's given through the FEMA program is not enough that would allow someone to um, rebuild their their house. You know, I remember someone saying early on, oh, FEMA's going to build us all new houses. And, you know, the truth is that's not FEMA's mandate. That's not what they're supposed to do. And it's not what they do. They give some money to help people get back on their feet. They give, for example, a living allowance so that people could rent a house or an apartment or a hotel room while their house was uninhabitable. So, you know, they provided that resource. Low interest loans were made available to people who might need them to recover from the the hurricane. So there were some resources available. Unfortunately, though, there were cases of people who were renters. And so they had all of their possessions destroyed. Most of them didn't have renters insurance. And, you know, the way the programs are set up, those people are not necessarily at the center of what the the programs are designed for. And so not that there was no assistance, but to see someone who's, you know, everything they own is destroyed in a natural disaster and there's really no blueprint for them clawing back to normalcy is is a really tough thing to see and something that was experienced by, uh, you know, too many people. At the very beginning as well, I think Melissa mentioned something about photos. One of the listeners actually had asked specifically, how do you go forward without many of your important or needed items if you lost things like birth certificates, social security cards, old family photos, important information that was on computers, or those sorts of things? I mean, in terms of photos, there were a couple baby albums that we had lost from a couple scrapbook kinds of things that couldn't really be duplicated. And I don't, somebody had a nice camera. And so we had them take pictures. So we'd have pictures of the pictures. So we still have those. But in terms of the documents being lost, birth certificates are pretty easy to get. Ours were not actually all of our important documents. Just so happened to be in a desk that was higher, an old secretary desk that had a higher shelf. So none of our documents were destroyed. But so we, we kind of got 
got lucky with that. But I know birth certificates are easy to get. I don't know about the other, the other things. I think it can be particularly hard for someone who has a lot of sentimental attachments to things to go through an experience like a natural disaster because you lose a ton of that type of stuff. Luckily, we're not people who had a strong sentimental attachment to a lot of the things that were in the house. I mean, there are still things that it's sad to lose, but for someone else, it could be really devastating. And we saw people who were just devastated by things that might not have had value to an insurance company but were things that were very important to them like photo albums or things that they had collected or grown child's toys or you know other things that just carried a lot of memory and significance for people and they had no choice but to put it out the trash like so many of their other belongings something that had for us that did have sentimental value that we were told we would have to get rid of and it wasn't going to work, but we decided that we didn't really care. We were going to keep it anyway was Peter's grandfather's piano. And it was something that we wanted to try to save. And everyone said, oh, once that salt water gets in it, it's just going to one day break. And we just saw the piano and played it about a week ago and it's almost five years later and it sounds great. So we are actually, I'm really glad that we didn't follow everybody else's advice and say, oh no, you have to get rid of it. It's, or it's not good or not. They didn't say you had to get rid of it, but it was like, it's not going to work, but we can say for now, almost five years later, it's still working. So I'm really happy that, um, that we were able to, that we just decided to roll the dice and keep that piano. One person asked, what do you think people who want to help misunderstand most about your situation and need? I think the days right after, for me, when people would say, oh, everything's going to be fine. And it was when I personally was in the in the midst of of like, oh, my gosh, uh, everything is upside down. I don't really know, like how this is all going to turn out. So I didn't have that positive outlook that I usually do. And so when people would say like, oh, everything's going to be fine, I wanted to just look at them and say, how do you know everything's going to be fine? So that phrase actually for me was kind of like, especially the first like 10 to 15 days coming from people who had no, you know, no idea what I was going going through to have them say, oh, everything's going to be fine, to me was insulting at the time. One piece of advice I would have for people is to offer specific ways that you might be able to help. A lot of people after a natural disaster will say, if there's anything I can do, please let me know. But there's so much that needs to be done, and so it can be overwhelming trying to figure out how well-intentioned person X is going to be able to plug into situation Y. That we found it much more helpful when either people just chose a way to help, like coming over with you know a, a tray of food or bringing over some warm drinks or just coming over and saying, you know, hey, I'm here to work. What can I do to help out? Then people who, you know, just kind of made vague offers as to, you know, the fact that they were willing to help. And I think they were well-intentioned. And I think those people probably would have been, you know, more than happy to actually help. 
but it was always easier when people found a way to help or ask specific questions. Hey, would it be helpful if, you know, we took the kids to school for you today? Or is there anything for your kitchen that you could use? Or is there any food you're having a hard time getting? And those things, the more specific people were in their offers of help, the the more we could take advantage of it and, and use that help. Another listener was very curious to your thoughts on policies and laws. What do you hope will change to help keep people safe in your situation in the future with future storms? Or what laws and policies will help people in your situation to better recover from those storms? It's really hard because as human beings, we've populated a lot of areas that shouldn't be populated. One only needs to look at a picture of Long Beach, Long Island that was taken in the 1920s to realize that it should have never been a thriving community of full-time homeowners. It's not a question of if the ocean at some point was going to reclaim Long Beach. It was a question of when. And so, you know, that's a very difficult and delicate policy from a policy standpoint, because what you'd be talking about is taking areas where people live and and, um, putting them off limits. But I do think as new communities uh, are developed, I think it's really important to look at how prone those communities would be to a natural disaster and to really discourage construction and development of areas that would be at high risk. Yeah, I agree with Pete. I think that I I heard a rumor and I actually don't know what, if anything ever became of it, but there was a rumor that the governor of New York was going to take to begin to buy, you know, the the state of New York is going to buy certain properties, for example, in a place like Staten Island, which had also had some extremely bad flooding, and they would return those properties to, to some sort of like wetlands to protect against hurricanes in the future. I honestly don't know whatever became of that, but I agree with Pete that it's such a difficult and delicate subject, but how much how much easier life would be if we just simply didn't build those houses in that area and left it to nature as it should be and how how much easier life would have been had nobody lived in Long Beach and nobody had to have their house flooded out. But it is very complicated as FEMA now comes in and has the regulation that you have to raise your house. And if you don't raise your house, then you can't get flood insurance. So there are there are policies being put in place, but they're expensive policies, too, for people that live there. So. So, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that, because, yeah, it's very delicate. Are those regulations put in with some sort of financial support or is that all on the homeowner to cover the cost for it? There are programs that help cover the cost. They don't cover everything, but there were programs developed that made that kind of renovation possible for people who might not have otherwise had the financial means to do what they needed to do to be in compliance with the regulations. I know for a lot of us, when we see on the news these stories of storms, it's all very negative and there's a lot of bad that comes out of that. Obviously, a lot of devastation and trauma and those sorts of things. Did you see any blessings that came out of the storm or blessings that came out for your family? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it it really brought neighbors together, people who were, you know, people you half-heartedly waved and said hello to. You ended up building really strong relationships with and shared this, uh, this common experience. People would just show up spontaneously to help if it was clear you were doing something and you, you know, needed more people to carry something heavy or bring uh, a piece of equipment into the house. People would just show up. And I think um, just the generosity of, of the people who, as we described before, walked through our, our neighborhood bringing hot meals, bringing hot coffee, uh, bringing blankets, and, and all the other things that made life a little bit easier was, was really a blessing. And then for me, and I think for Melissa as well, you know, realizing how much more we had than what we actually needed. It sounds tough to live in the upstairs of a house with, you know, in three really tiny rooms and a bathroom. But once we got used to it, you know, we were as happy as we had ever been. And sure, we had less stuff and less distractions, but I think we were surprised at how much life went on, even in a in a kind of bizarre environment compared to how we had lived before. Yeah, and I think a lesson, a positive lesson that that I learned from the experience and sort of a blessing was to to kind of take things as they come and be okay with how things are in the moment. I'm a planner. I like to organize things in advance, things like that. And I think the hurricane really pushed me to realize that that things are not going to always fit the way that I want them to fit. And and I don't have the control and I can let go of that and be more flexible and take things as they come one thing at a time because I just simply couldn't solve all the problems that happened to our house right right away in one moment. Things had to reveal themselves in order for us to figure out like what do we want to do with this house what is our plan we didn't know all at once we had to go step by step and kind of rip out the carpet and say oh we need more like we need to redo the wires all right and everything just sort of happened step by step so I think I personally learned that and I think just to echo what Pete said about the, I think that I got a chance to see the goodness in people that I always knew was there, um, but it was really evident those days when we were mucking out the house um, about the goodness of people and how people truly did want to help, and they did. And and the simple things like like a hot meal really did mean a lot, and it taught me a lot about being able to accept other people's help because I've always been used to being the one who's involved in helping other people that I actually had to realize that I needed to accept help from others and people were there to offer that help. So that was a, a huge blessing for me. Um, and it also gave me a lot of empathy when, not that I was ever harsh, like, oh, those people went through a hurricane or a tsunami, like, oh, okay, moving right on. But I think I'm able to, when I hear that someone has experienced a, a natural disaster, I feel like from my own experience, I can offer a listening ear and be able to understand a little bit more about what they might be going through because I've gone through it too. 
You've mentioned a lot of great things that people did to help. Most of them were people who were in your area or were close by. The most common question from all of listeners that sent in questions was how can I help or how do I help? And most of those were from people who were not in the areas where the hurricanes happened. So what advice would you have for those folks, especially people who maybe don't have a family member in that area so there's not a direct tie that they have, but they still want to do something to help? I think I recently with the with Hurricane Harvey in Houston, I think finding a connection of an organization or a community group or a church, and if you can find a group that you trust, that you know will get into the hands of the people that that will help. That is a, a wonderful way to help is, you know, people had gathered money and bought us gift cards for Home Depot. And so all of those things, all of those things really do help. And for people who are further away, it was an opportunity for us to receive, you know, and cash. <laughs> cash is always helpful. So if people who are far away can find an organization that they trust to give money or goods goods to we found that those goods reached us they we definitely we definitely received a lot of those things i would also warn people to beware of some of the big name relief organizations that tend yes. to take advantage of the publicity generated by these disasters to go into fundraising mode. But our experience is that most of the aid and help and assistance that re reached us and our neighbors was from smaller organizations or, or individuals who were looking to help out more than the you know, the Red Crosses of the world. Red Cross came by, I think, maybe once and gave us like a cleaning supply, literally bucket, broom, and a blanket. And that was it. There wasn't much going on. I did see a group called Samaritan's Purse, which I think is like an evangelical, uh, evangelical kind of uh, disaster relief and they were everywhere they had a, a trailer and I had heard neighbors that they came in and treated the houses with uh, with bleach for free volunteers you know so there were some groups that like I would yeah that, that were smaller church that really did a lot of a lot of good things for people in the community and uh, not so much the red crosses of the world since you've been through this experience, if you had a message to share with those who are just now experiencing it or who may experience it in the future, what would you want to say to those folks struggling through a situation, having lost their homes or belongings to a hurricane or natural disaster? I would say you just have to take it day by day and wake up and do what you need to do today and Tomorrow will present a whole other set of, of challenges and opportunities that you'll be ready to deal with tomorrow. But don't, don't try to look too far into the future because the future is very, especially in situations like this, it's very hazy and undefined. And so if you can find the personal resources to wait, 
clear answers will present themselves, but it's going to take some patience because those clear answers will be frustratingly elusive if you try to find them before it's time. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Very well said. The only other thing that I would add is sort of dig deep and be stronger than you think you are because you might want to just sort of wither away and just give up because there's just too much on that list. There's too many challenges, but know that you can get through it. You will get through it and you'll learn a lot along the way and there will be challenges and there will be ups and downs, but be a little, be stronger than you think you are at the, in the moment. Those are such great words. The last question that I have, and then I'll wrap up and let you guys get on with your lives. The name of the podcast is wish you knew So what would be three things that you wish we knew, we being those of us who haven't had to live through this experience and see it on the news and aren't necessarily sure what to do with that? I wish you knew that it is possible to live on the top floor of a flooded out house. I wish you knew how many delicacies can be prepared using nothing other than a 12-inch George Foreman grill. I wish you knew how difficult it is to live without a washer and a, and a dryer and have two kids for eight months. I wish you knew how trying circumstances can bring neighbors together and bring out the best in people. I wish you knew that even though all of your earthly possessions have been wiped away by the ocean, you can still be happy. With those wishes, I just want to thank you for taking the time to share. You've had many great insights for us, and I think all of us listening will learn a lot from what you have had to say. So thank you very much for taking the time out of your day. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's our pleasure, Karen. Thank you. Again, a huge thanks to Melissa and Pete for taking the time to share with us this event from their life and how they got through it, what their experiences were. Like I said at the beginning, I hope this helps all of us to have a better understanding and a more personal way to process what we're seeing on the news. If you do feel moved to support those who are currently struggling with loss due to the hurricanes or other natural disasters, There are a number of organizations listed in the show notes or places to look where you can make a donation that will hopefully get to those most in need. There's also some information in the show notes about being prepared for disaster and what you can do to help ensure that you and your family are ready if some sort of natural or man-made disaster strikes in your area. As always, we definitely appreciate all of your shares and your likes, your reviews, anything you can do to help get the word out. I also very much appreciate all of you who take the time to send in questions for upcoming interviews. As always, you can find the list of upcoming interviews on our website. There are forms there where you can submit questions so that we can ask people the questions that you have. Until next time, remember... People are people are people. Keep listening, keep learning, keep loving. We have an extra addition at the end of this episode, just so you all don't think that it's all serious on these interviews. Here's a brief outtake from the interview with Pete and Melissa that I really thought was important to share with all of you. Have a great week. For those of you listening, I wish you knew how handsome I am in person. (laughs) (laughs) 
That one is definitely staying in. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> For those of you listening, <laughs> I wish you knew how full of himself my husband is. 